Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Hi, I'm Tim Akimoff, the host of the Beaver State Podcast. I am here in Lake Tahoe with my colleague, Beth Quillian, the Northwest District PIO. And I'm Ashley Sanchez with Nevada Wild, and I'm here also in Lake Tahoe. Aaron Keller, our co-host, is also here. As you could tell, we're trying something new. We're switching things up, and we are doing a joint podcast between Nevada Department of Wildlife and Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Yes, we are. First time. First time. A little nervous, but I think we got this. And why are we in Lake Tahoe? We are here for the sixth International Human Bear Conflicts Workshop. So this is an international conflicts workshop that brings people from all over the world together to talk about strategies toward better managing human bear conflicts and better communicating and education surrounding human bear conflicts. And we're going to give you a little treat this week because... Normally, our podcasts kind of focus, you know, broadly on the stuff that's happening in our own states. But human bear conflict is something that really is shared by a lot of places, not just here in the West, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so we've got a bunch of guests, hopefully this week, that will tell us about some of those perspectives. And we're going to kind of let you in on some of the background that we do as fish and wildlife managers, or in our case, fish and wildlife communicators, uh, and sort of, uh, I guess, to put it blandly, to see how the sausage is made. (laughs) Exactly. It should be, it's like a nice inside look for our listeners. Yeah. It's exciting. And so our first guest this week, or or today, is uh, Chris Servine. And Chris, you're uh, retired now, but you've been, you've had a long career with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and a lot of your work was done with bears. Yes. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be here. Um, I was the grizzly bear recovery coordinator for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for 35 years, and I retired in 2016. So in that job, I tried to coordinate all the research and management on grizzly bears uh, as we work to recover the populations in the lower 48 states. And uh, you're still very active uh, working with uh, human bear conflict. Oh yeah, I'm doing lots of things on human bear conflicts. We have a work group in in Missoula, Montana. We're trying to implement a bear smart community in Missoula. We have about 150 black bears in town and we have lots of conflicts there. I'm also the board chair and president of the Montana Wildlife Federation where we do a lot of work with wildlife across Montana and trying to you know, balance the needs of people with the needs of wildlife. And I'm the co-chair of the IUCN Bear Specialist Group, the North American Bears Expert Team. Staying busy in retirement. Yeah, I think I failed at retirement. <laughs> I was going to say, that doesn't sound like you're retired. <laughs> no, it's very busy. I should just note, too, I, I first met Chris uh, probably 2008 uh, when I was a reporter at the Missoulian newspaper and um, doing stories about human bear conflict back then. And uh, I have had some good conversations with you over, over the years, so I'm actually glad to be back at it. We're still talking about the same issues. We are still talking about the same issues. It's true. (laughs) And that's something that's interesting. You mentioned grizzly bears. You're located and doing a lot of work in Missoula, Montana. But we have people from all over here. We're talking about eight different species of bears at this workshop. It seems like a lot of the challenges all of us face, no matter where we're located, are the same. (laughs) They are. There's, you know, the overlap of humans and bears produces conflict. 
and, um, and many times those conflicts are due to what people do. They leave garbage out, they have fruit trees, they have hobby chickens, uh, they're raising livestock, all the things that bears can get into. Uh, when those things occur close to people around their houses or in, in economic needs, say you're raising livestock and you're losing animals to bears, those are, those are things that need to be solved. Um, you know, we have this overlap of, of bears and people. And we have more and more people living in bear habitat these days. And in many areas, we're having increasing bear populations. And so the two are overlapping, more bears overlapping more people. And that produces conflicts and produces a lot of work for bear conflict managers. Exactly. This morning, you gave a, a kind of a perspective of, you know, I guess over the course of your career, uh, the evolution of human-bear conflict. Um, we're all communicators and kind of curious about your thoughts on how communications around human-bear conflict have evolved, or maybe they haven't uh, in that time. I, you know, a lot of the challenges, we're still talking about the same challenges today that we were in 2008, and I gotta imagine it goes further back than that. Have you seen a lot of changes around the, the world of communications? And I guess I asked this in the light of like, you know, social media has become huge. You know, we've seen, we've talked about YouTube and becoming a place where people seek information. Uh, in your, I guess, you know, the capacity of your career, what have you seen in terms of communication changes around human bear conflict? Well, there's been a lot of changes in the way people talk about bears and bears that get into conflict with people. In the past, the simple solution was that the bear was the problem. And, um, you know, they were called problem bears. And if a bear got into garbage or if he got into your chickens or killed livestock or something, that was a problem bear that had to be dealt with. And the way it was usually dealt with is that you kill the bear. And um, um, that kind of solution that, you know, you just got rid of the bear and the bear was the problem was going on for a long, long time. And in the past 20 or so years, we've seen the evolution of thought on this so that it's not so much the bear that's the problem. Now we're recognizing that it's the humans that are causing the problem. Hmm. And so it's not so much a problem bear, it's the way people are doing things in bear habitat that lead to human-bear conflict. Yeah. You know, we used to talk about conflicts as bear conflicts. Now we talk about them as human-bear conflicts because they're almost always related to humans and what humans do. Um, people live in bear habitat, and as such, they need to recognize that they need to behave in a special way. And our challenge as managers is to not only deal with the bears that get into these conflicts that people provide, but more importantly, to get the message to people to prevent these conflicts from happening in the first place. Mm. Store your garbage so bears can't get at it. Don't have hoppy chickens in bear, bear range. If you've got bees, for example, put electric fencing around the bees. All these things that can get bears into trouble, people can do things to prevent those. Hmm. And our challenge is to get people to do the right thing, which is difficult. We know a lot more about bears than we do about how people behave and, and what motivates them. Yeah. What about the rise of like misinformation and disinformation as like, you know, part of our communications world and, and even what we've seen with regard to like mistrust of government, uh, especially in the last, you know, five, six years. Uh, has that been a challenge in terms of communicating, especially from an agency perspective, a government perspective? Yeah, I think there's a general distrust of government these days. And, you know, the, the, it used to be that people that really knew what they were talking about were trusted and, and people believed what they said. Mm. And we seem to be entering this kind of 
Never Never Land of you don't have to really know anything about a particular issue to be trustworthy. Mm. And uh, it's really frustrating. You know, as, as specialists with bears, we we used to figure that we could provide information to the public and they would buy this and, and understand that this is probably the right thing to do because right. these people know what they're talking about. But uh, in many cases now we get confounding views, people on the Internet or people on YouTube that come up with their own solutions, right. their own ideas, which in many cases depart from reality. And it's hard to get people back. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm hogging the mic here. So. Oh, no. <laughs> I keep seeing Aaron scoot up. So well, <laughs> Aaron, I think, if he thought it was a hard pill to swallow for um, to, to communicate that the humans are the problem and not necessarily the bears. Was it a hard pill for the managers to swallow? I don't think it was difficult. No, I, more from the public. Oh, yeah. Because it's easy to put blame on the animal, but not necessarily to look at what co what's causing the problem. Yes, it is a very hard pill to swallow for the public that they are responsible for these problems. And uh, there's a lot of denial in that regard. I mean, we, we're trying to get communities to think bear smart and to minimize conflicts. And in many cases, they think we're exaggerating. You know, it's not that big a deal. Or that it's, you know, you can solve the problem. I've known in the past when somebody had a, a, a problem, they just called Fish and Game, and Fish and Game came about the bear, and the bear disappeared. And so things must be fine because mm -hmm. the bear's gone. It was solved. Well, there's no place to take these bears. It's far enough away from people now. And... And in many cases, the bears just have to be killed because they're just, they can't be fixed. Because once bears get into human food, they're forever going to be seeking human food. We say a, a fed bear is a dead bear. And, um, um, you know, for the public to understand that they are responsible for the, the fact that this bear dies is a big thing. I think the public is often challenged with that, and they think that, you know, you guys shouldn't kill him, but you should just fix it, you know, just make it go away. Right. Yeah, but there's no way to make it go away. It, it usually ends up that the bear has to be destroyed. Yeah. I was going to bring up, in your presentation this morning, you mentioned, as we're talking about, people realizing that they're the problem more so than the bears, and that they need to feel like they're part of the solution. So it's kind of a two-step process, realizing that you're part of the problem for, you know, not storing your trash properly, but have you seen, are there some examples that you could think of, of effective ways of helping people kind of get to that second step of realizing I'm part of the solution, how you encourage people to take that next step and move beyond just feeling bad that they're part of the problem? Well, that is where the rubber meets the road these days, is trying to get to that second step. And, you know, the, the real long-term solution is for people to feel that they are they are helping solve this, not that government is going to come in and tell them what to do, or that government will somehow magically make that bear go away, but they need to realize that their behaviors are causing the problem in the first place. And there's so much denial that people have about that, and often an unwillingness to take the extra steps, whether it's, you know, maybe pay more for a bear-resistant garbage can, or put electric fence around your apple trees, things that you know, they never had to do before, if they want to have bears around, they're going to have to make an extra effort. And if they think they can do that, then we're getting to the point where they're becoming part of the solution. But, you know, we don't want to be 
you know, regulatory and tell people you can't have chickens and you can't have bees and you can't have apple trees. We give them the solutions as to how they can have those things but minimize problems with theirs. Our challenge is to get them to do that on their own because we don't want to be telling them they have to do stuff because people don't like that. And if we're only going to have bears if we demand that people do certain things, then there's going to be conflict and struggles, and we don't want that. We want it to be agreeable. We want people to say, yeah, I, I like bears. And, you know, I understand that. I live in bear habitat. I guess i gotta, I got to do something more. In fact, that's why I live here, because it's wild. It's a neat place to live. There's mountains. There's wild country. That's what made me live here in the first place. And with that comes a responsibility to do the right thing. How important is it to have a workshop like this to bring everyone together to try to overcome that challenge of getting people to understand um, that it's really on all of us? Well, the workshop is really important as we, the managers, learn better ways to communicate. You know, when we first started these workshops, a lot of the, the efforts that went on and discussions at the workshop were how to trap these bears and how far you could take them and and if you relocated them in the spring, were they going to successfully stay? And, you know, with radio collars, all this biological data that was discussed. Now, what we're talking about is the human dimensions aspect of it. And the importance of trying to understand what motivates people to do the right thing. Where do they get their information about bears? Who do they trust when they get information about bears? And what makes them willing to make the right choices you know what is it that they need to know in order to make the right choices and that all involves the details of human dimensions which is something biologists don't know anything about and that's that's what we need to talk to is the human dimensions specialists and there's a bunch of them here and that's where the future is going to be and success is going to be in in dealing with people and being successful in marketing the importance of how you live in bear habitat for people to be part of the solution, we have to be better communicators with them, and we need the human dimensions expertise to do that. So now the, the new the new sessions are a lot about human dimensions and outreach and how to how to understand what people do and why they do it. Super interesting to hear how that's evolved over time. Yeah. <laughs> and you and several other speakers have mentioned that you know you know your your job differs from the human dimension scientists, but but over the years of your career, you've seen a lot of you know, of this interaction, this human bear conflict, do you, you know, do you believe based on your experience, behaviorally people can change and do they effectively? Or, you know, we've heard people talk about the importance of like education. In fact, the gentleman from India, uh, they focus a lot on early childhood education in terms of, you know, sloth bears and that kind of outreach. Do you think that adults can change their behaviors? Do you think we should be focusing our efforts on kids? Like, we're, we're, we're just, what's your experience with that? I do think adults can change their behaviors. I think we, we have uh, communities, for example, with grizzly bear recovery, you know, we went 35 years ago, we, there were lots of places where there were no grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. And now, with recovery, these bears have reoccupied places where they've been extinct for mm -hmm. over 100 years. And in many of these places, the people... They live with bears now, and they tell us about how their their grandfather, you know, was actively killing all the bears in the area, yeah. and they were really intolerant of bears, and bears were gone for a long time. Hmm. And now when the bears are coming back, these new residents, many 
in many cases, agricultural users, you know, ranchers and people that they like having the bears on their property. And they have very few conflicts, and they think it's pretty cool to yeah. have the bears back. And so, you know, if you can change the attitudes of people that many would think of as really intolerant of predators, like many of these ranchers, if you can change the attitude of folks like that, I think you can do it with the average urban person. Hmm. I think the challenge for us is to get people to make the effort to do the right thing. Sometimes it's a financial effort, often not much at all. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes it's, you know, if I'm going to live with hobby chickens, I'm living in bear habitat and I've got to do something special if I'm going to do that. It's not like, you know, I'm just going to try to get away with as little as possible. And, and our challenge is to try to get them to do those things. Hmm. They can do it. It's possible to minimize conflicts with bears. It's just a question of how you motivate people to do that. I yeah. think we can get it done, but sometimes it's really exhausting and sometimes it's frustrating because you just, uh, here we go again. And yeah, so it's slow work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, I think we can get to this point, like you said, where we could all coexist. It's just getting people to understand that we all need to change our attitudes and behaviors. Right. And I was going to say that Ashley and I get um, videos and tagged in social media all the time of people that take the measures uh, to, you know, put up the fence or the electric mats or whatever it is. And they are very effective. Um, how important is it to kind of like chip away at that? Or does it take like a neighborhood to make it? You know, because I could do it as, as an individual, but then won't they just go to the next neighbor? It takes a neighborhood. Indeed, everybody's got to do it. And that's what we've been talking to these human dimensions people about. You know, how do we get people in general to adopt these behaviors? You know, if, and, and they have great gems to share with us. Like, you know, if you do something, whatever it is, you know, you may feel like you're kind of out of the mainstream. But if you see that other people are doing it too, then you may be more willing to be part of the group and feel that, you know, yeah, everybody's doing it. And, for example, if you've got a bear-resistant garbage can, and most of your neighbors don't, if you've got a, a big sign on the side of that can that says, this is a bear-resistant can, or you've got a sign that you maybe stick up in front of your house, like one of these political signs, but it says, you know, we're a bear-smart home or we're a bear-smart family, then other people can think, you know, maybe do that too. Those guys are doing it. It's cool. You know, this group thing is really important. And this is something the human dimensions people have told us that, you know, individuals doing things alone, even though it may be the right thing, people can just kind of, you know, go away and nobody else does that. But, it, but if there's a bunch of people doing it and it becomes the thing to do, then it becomes more acceptable and people become, you know, willing to make those extra efforts. And, you know, those are the little tricks we need to try to use to get people to do the right thing you mm. know it's it's everybody's doing it you know it's the right thing to do mm -hmm. my neighbor's doing it i respect him and i'll do it too and you know it's it's important to have the that knowledge and there's a lot of work to do to get everybody to do the right thing yeah now that you mentioned <laughs> that ashley and i had a uh, a guest on that and she was the president of the homeowners association yes and they had really good luck with even just putting up signs that says bear activity in a neighborhood because some people didn't even know that they had bears around. Yep. Yeah, just, you know, knowing that bears are around, knowing that bears are here because of the things that we do. I mean, they wouldn't normally be here. You know, we, in most of these neighborhoods where we have bear problems, we have created this 
this great new source of energy for these bears. And normally they would travel through these, you know, think of a mountain valley, you know, or just a small drainage, you know, where the bears would maybe go down and they'd eat berries at a certain time of year and then they'd go somewhere else. Well, now they go down into that same area, they start to eat some berries, and then there's garbage and bird feed and pet feed and, you know, horse cake, all this other stuff that's available. And so they say, we're not going to eat. And so they're there. And we've created this, this new place for them. What a good deal. And um, by people understanding that, you know, these bears are here because of what I, something I did, not something that the bears did, that's a huge breakthrough. Yeah, I remember like um, 10 years ago, we live trapped a bear and it was out behind a bakery. And I was like, no wonder, you know, the, the bear was there because he's eating birthday cake all day. Out of a bakery. Oh, like I don't blame <laughs> Compared to berries. That, you know? <laughs> yeah, one of our biggest problem areas in Missoula was behind this bakery that they had a dumpster with a the lid, lid that would just flip up and all those donuts and, you know, <laughs> pastries that they couldn't <laughs> eat anymore were in there. And that bear was in there and he was fat and he thought this was great. And these people are like, you know, I can't go and put the garbage in there. There's a bear in the dumpster again. Well, why do you think he's there? He can get into the dumpster. And so we put a dumpster in with a locking lid, and the bear couldn't get in anymore. So it's a simple solution, but everybody's got to be doing it. Yeah. Beyond neighborhoods, it needs to be businesses. I mean, we're talking about businesses. Everybody needs to do it. It's a group effort, and that's why we live here in these places with animals and nature, because that's why we, we move here, because we like these wild places. We like having animals around and if we wanted a sterilized environment without any wild animals, then, we'll, you know, there's plenty of places you can live, and that's the case, you know, downtown Los Angeles or someplace like that. But there's plenty of places where we're living now here in the beauty of nature, and, and we need to, to work to balance our activities with the needs of the animals that live around us. I know Beth, like, in her in her job she deals a lot more with that sort of outreach from the agency to you know these communities uh, in my job as a social media coordinator i deal with a lot of the opposite which is the vitriol we get from the public if we have to kill a bear because it's become uh you know uh, habituated to humans um it's got me thinking a lot about that other side of it which is uh, we get a ton of feedback from the public when a bear is killed, and a lot of it's just a misunderstanding of how things work. Like, people don't understand habituated bears. They don't know that a habituated bear cannot just change its behaviors. Um, you know, and, and these, these events have just grown. We've had four in the last couple of years that reached levels of, you know, almost shutting down our social media because of the, the feedback from the public. Um, what do you think about that side of the communications issue around bears? Because that's a love of bears that's also kind of missing the biological understanding of, of what bears are and what they do. Yeah, that's the, uh, the love of animals divorced from the reality of how it works out there. You know, the, the simple solution that, or the simple phrase that a fed bear is a dead bear is really true because once they get going on mm -hmm. something like that, they're never going to stop. Right. And they will never become like wild bears again. They're always going to be looking for garbage and bird feeders and stuff like that. And, um, you know, bears have to be destroyed because bears can be dangerous to people. When they become food conditioned, so they're looking for human food and habituated, so they've lost the yeah. normal avoidance response, these bears can walk right up to people, and they're really dangerous. And that's wrong. 
And we've created that. As in, as again, that's something that humans have done. Right. Their feeding of the bears, providing the food, and allowing that bear to get that way. And then the destruction of that bear is regrettable. Everybody, nobody likes to destroy bears like that. But yeah. It's important for public safety. And, you know, we want to, instead of being reactive to those types of things and having to kill bears, we'd like to be proactive and prevent that from happening mm-hmm. in the first place. And that's our messaging to the public, trying to get ahead of this so that we don't have to kill more bears. We don't want to do it. Yeah. One of the things that has been... I guess interesting to me is uh, a lot of the feedback from the public, especially this this group of people that might be divorced from you know the reality of what bears are and can do, is this notion that they can either somehow be rehabbed, or two they can be placed into some type of facility, right? And it's like I was talking to our carnivore coordinator, and and he said, yeah, you know, he goes maybe decades ago there were zoos willing to take black bears, but you know that's you know there's increasing in bear populations zoos don't lack for black bears these days and it's very hard to place a bear uh but that's still sort of something that rattles around in people's brains that like why can't you do these other things you know and and then there's states that have very different things we were talking about the challenge of like Oregon can't relocate bears because every time we do, they come back to the source and travel hundreds of miles. But a state like Nevada has, uh, you know, bigger wild areas. Uh, They might be able to place things or Utah or Idaho. They have huge wilderness areas. They have different options. But a lot of times if they communicate about releasing a bear, it then people take that information, come back to Oregon and say, well, if Idaho can do it, why can't you do it? And that that's a challenge because there's perceptions that options exist that aren't really options for some states like Oregon. Yeah, there aren't really options to move bears. I mean, once these bears have these behaviors, you know, this food conditioning, which is seeking human food mm-hmm. and relaxed nature around people, they walk right up to people. Yeah. If you take a bear like that and you put him in the middle of the wilderness, he's going to walk right into somebody's camp. Right. and look for food in the camp and you're sitting there minding your own business and this bear walks in and you're going whoa what is going on here <laughs> I mean you've moved the yeah. bear but you, the problem is with that bear and he will take that problem wherever we go yeah. so there's no way to, to fix that we can't get them to be good bears again and putting them in a facility you know that's that's no life for a wild animal you put them in some kind of a concrete pen with you know a fence around him he may still be alive but that's you're not doing them any good. That was one of the more effective things we found in this last year in communicating about a specific bear that people wanted to have it transferred to a facility that was willing to come get it was uh, one of our, our communicators basically said, look, this facility would be so small and, a, and an average black bear's range is, is this big and you're going to consign it to a life in this type of thing. And the feedback from the public was like, oh, yeah, I wouldn't want that. And that was one of the first things I found that actually like reached people was like, you want to take this animal that has this size range and consign it to a life in these, you know, this kind of parameter. And they, they're like, yeah, I, I wouldn't want that. And that was, that was interesting. And that's the reality of it. You know, we can't get around that. These animals have to be destroyed when they get this, to this stage. Yeah. Tim, I was going to ask you, when you get those comments, are they from local people? Or are they from, you know, from all over the world that would like chime in. I think that's you might have some insight into like social media and how that kind of works. Well, it often starts local with some local, you know, what one that comes to mind is a is a black bear that you know was uh, swimming in a popular lake, and uh, a biologist ended up having to destroy the bear because uh, it it was showing 
very comfortable signs of being around humans. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of local law enforcement had placed social media posts, you know, making the bear seem really cute and look who's out swimming with us, that type of stuff. And, and so the backlash against that image of the bear interacting with the public in a cute way versus the reality of it, which is wildlife managers are going, this bear is extremely dangerous. You know, some kid comes up and the bear sees it competing for food with it and boom, you know, so they destroyed the bear and the backlash was public, local first, but then extended national and eventually around the world we got feedback from england of all places about you know how disappointed the uh the representatives of the queen were for you know how oregon handled that issue (laughs) it's oh sorry i was gonna say isn't that amazing that one animal can reach that far yeah as far as like it's a real problem and it was taken care of but then how it can kind of Oh, yeah, it spirals to the point where, like, it, it literally does shut down our social media. And it's when I'm no longer answering questions for, for our local public, which is what I feel is my job, you know, and I'm answering questions to somebody in New Jersey who's upset with us about, you know, something they don't understand at all about our bears. Because New Jersey's bears are obviously different in the way that they interface with, you know, I mean, not, not completely. There's similarities, but they just don't, the state has different problems than we have. And so, you know, I mean, Beth can probably speak to some of the issues like, in her district, a lot of it is really coastal bears in places that it's just almost all garbage issues. Yeah, a lot of garbage issues and a lot with vacation rentals. It's really hard to reach those people, you know, to find out who to contact and where to share the info that that information is going to make it from the owner of the property to the people who are staying there. And how do you make sure that the people who are staying there for this random week of the year are going to actually see it? And take the steps, yep. you know, with the Bearwise program, six Bearwise basics. How, how do we make sure that people see this and actually follow through on it? And that's a huge problem in Oregon, is especially on the coast where a lot of our bears actually don't. You know, they're not really hibernating. They're they're active year round mm-hmm. because of trash and and other, you know, reasons of unsecured garbage and food food sources. And the vacation home problem brings up its own issue in that. People who own those homes are largely from Portland, and they have a different relationship with wildlife than local people do. And so we have a difficult time communicating with them, and they're some of the first that will give us a lot of backlash about, you know, if we have to destroy a bear for various reasons. Mm-hmm. We, one thing that Oregon has been doing more recently is posting more on Nextdoor, which has been really cool. It reaches a, a limited amount of people, but going back to our discussions about its community effort, Kind of the hope there is that even if one or two neighbors take that information and start changing their behavior, that their neighbors will catch on. And we're always encouraging them, tell your neighbors, tell your neighbors, and tell people in your neighborhood who are vacationers too. Um, share this information with them, and hopefully that will make a difference. Yeah. Nevada has an interesting situation because only a small part of our state has bears. A lot of that being here in Tahoe and in Tahoe that what we see, the bear activity is more extreme because it is a lot of vacation homes and people coming from urban areas, just like you said, in Portland. And we've also been using Nextdoor, which is great because you could also, you might not reach as many people, but you could target specific communities and let them know about bear activity in their neighborhoods and what they could be doing to prevent a bear from coming to their property. Yeah, that's a really uh, helpful tool to be able to target 
target specifically and let people know this is a this is an issue that is in your neighborhood. Right. It, it's actually exactly. Like down the street from you. This is not a general statement no, to the general not. public. <laughs> this is impacting you. <laughs> Chris, another kind of interesting issue that we deal with in Oregon is related to grizzly bear recovery. Um, you know, there is this just pervasive theory that we as an agency are releasing grizzly bears around the state secretly, you know, in order to repopulate them. And it's frustrating for me because like, it's just because we have this sort of, you know, anti-government feelings among a lot of the public, they just assume that we're lying about it. And I know there's an effort to look at releasing or to, to uh, recovering grizzlies in the North Cascades, but just in terms of grizzly bear management and sort of helping grizzly bear populations recover. Can you speak at all to that and why we're not releasing grizzlies in Oregon at this time? Well, there's no grizzly bear recovery zones in Oregon, yeah. and so there's no program or plan um, to release grizzly bears in Oregon. There's no chapter in the recovery plan about grizzly bears in Oregon, mm-hmm. and we're not releasing grizzly bears in Oregon. We never have. Right. So, <laughs> Thank uh, you. you know, we have, we have an idea to, to recover bears in the North Cascade. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there is a chapter in the recovery plan about the North Cascade, and in the Bitterroot ecosystem in East Central Idaho, we actually have still a standing proposal to introduce 25 bears into the, the Bitterroot. Hmm. And we've never put any bears in there because it's never been funded yet. So um, we don't have enough grizzly bears to take them and move them all over the world and different places. And we wouldn't take grizzly bears and put them in some isolated mountain range in Oregon. Because mm-hmm. That's wouldn't be any good for those grizzly bears, and we don't do that kind of thing. So, hmm, interesting. You know, we have five, we have six recovery zones, and we have recovery ongoing in all of those. Two of them don't have any bears in them. That's the reintroduced sites of the Bitterroot and North Cascade. I, and this is this you know I may or may not include this because this, this might be off topic, but uh, a lot of it I feel it comes from uh, as as wolves have expanded, you know, throughout their former range. Uh, there's a perception that you know because because they were helped by releases in specific places that that's the same strategy that that would be used for grizzly bears but you know there's a lot of of natural movement between wolf populations in canada you know into the united states um with grizzly bears do they have a similar dispersal strategy that wolves and would you you know would you possibly see grizzlies disperse into places they haven't been previously and sort of successfully set up on their own or how does that work in terms of grizzly expansion? Well, grizzly bears don't disperse like wolves do. They don't move that far. Um, they do disperse to some extent, particularly sub-adult males, and uh, they act like teenagers. They go out into places to just kind of check it out, hmm. and they often go back to where they are. Um, what we see is that um, the expanding range of grizzly bears in, in populations that are doing well, they tend to move out gradually, and we get males first and then eventually we get females hmm. females are much less likely to disperse than males are and so for example in the bitterroot we've had several males that have moved into there but there's no population because there's no reproduction hmm. and um, they tend to move into places like that for a little while and they go back um, they, they don't stay so the, the females are very reluctant to move very much and when a young female sets up her home range part of her home range will overlap her mother's range so they're very close. So if you go into a place with a lot of grizzly bear females, like the Lamar Valley and Yellowstone Park, mm-hmm. for example, and you see several different groups of 
females with cubs or offspring, all those bears are probably related to each other hmm. because those females have had young and their female young have stayed close. And so you get all these really close overlapping home ranges. And, you know, females don't go very far at all. And so it's very difficult. That's why we want to reintroduce into a place like the Bitterroot because if we waited for them to do it on their own, hmm. females probably wouldn't get there for decades and decades. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. And do you think that wraps it up, Tim? I Good, yeah. Anything else you want to add? No, I think we've covered it all. We just want to prevent these things from happening instead of following after the, the problems and trying to deal with them afterwards. You know, we'd like to prevent bear, bears from getting into trouble with people. And that's what we're all about. And like you said, we could all coexist. We just got to take we, the right steps. We can do it. We can live with bears with minimum level of conflicts if we just take the effort to do it. Exactly. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to all of you. Of course. Gone to Saskatchewan, where the getting's good if you're getting gone. I'm gonna put my boots and my hat back on, cause I'm long gone to Saskatchewan. Long gone to Saskatchewan. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. All right, our next guest is Joe Savikitak. And Joe, I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about where you're from, your background. Uh, I don't want to mispronounce things uh, it was enough to get your last name correct i hope i didn't butcher very that very impressive Tim. um but joe you're uh uh you're you're up in canada and you're here at the conference with us and really your main work is with polar bears correct yeah um i deal quite a bit with polar bears and i come from a place called Alviet, Alviet, Nunavut, which lies on the western coast of hudson bay um it, there's no roads there, there's no trees, it's very isolated, it's a fly-in only community, and it's cold, very cold, extremely cold. Wow. Uh, cold as in minus 50, minus 60 Oof. in the wintertime, and very windy. Yeah. And How long did it take you to get here? I'm just it, curious. It took me two days and five different aircrafts. To oh, get my to. Goodness. oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. I, when we all read your bio, because all the featured speakers have bios for this workshop, we were all like, this guy is so interesting um just living in a flying community and then you live on a migration route correct for polar bears correct yeah um the bears that are in my area they go in a big uh, migration route they're constantly moving and this time of the year is when they hit our where we are and we are on a point of land so they have basically no choice but to go to the land our area it's kind of like if you build a town after a railroad is built, then a train always goes through town. So mm. it's kind of like the same situation where a town is there right in the path of a polar bear uh, migration. So we encounter polar bears constantly this time of the year when they start to move. Uh, when the temperature starts to cool off, that's when they start to move, waiting for the ice in the Hudson Bay to freeze up. And that's that time of the year again right now. And Joe, you, you have two jobs, really, right? I have multiple, or ma- multiple jobs. jobs. He has like <laughs> 10 <laughs> jobs. Officer. That's my role in Nongweat. I'm a conservation officer there. 
In fact, I'm doing two jobs within that department right now due to shortage of staff. Hmm. On top of that, I am the mayor of the community there and involved in search and rescue, Coast Guard, auxiliary, and quite a bit of my own free time too. So I have to try and juggle everything. It's very rewarding. It's very uh, humbling experience when you do all of that and make time for people, make changes in people's lives. And hmm. That's quite the... It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of um, like sacrifices, mm -hmm. family time and all that, but it's worth it. And I love what I do. <laughs> it seems obvious that you do. Um, do you, uh, you know, I guess like wanting to work with polar bears, is that something that comes from your, your background traditionally, or it, is that an interest is, you yes, developed as a kid? I grew up and born up there, mm -hmm. so I grew up with polar bears, and my dad was a conservation officer while I was growing up. And in fact, that was my intended goal when I finished high school. But when I graduated high school, they weren't offering first-year students. So I thought, oh, I'll wait one year. But one year turned into several years because I got a job in construction, building houses, huh. all that for a few years. And a uh, conservation officer, I never thought about that again. I became a mechanic, heavy-duty, like a mechanic. I did that for a few years, 10 years, and an opportunity came up to become a conservation officer. So I took that, mm. and that's what I've been doing since 2012. In your background as a mechanic, it sounds like has actually come in handy with polar bear management, um, because you have a whole program. Do you want to explain that and how you've put your background yeah, as a mechanic to use? <laughs> that's why it's so interesting to me. As a mechanic where I am, you have to be um, very good at whatever you do, many different things. Down south, there's specialty shops who look after transmissions and engines and whatnot. Up there, you have to try and kind of know everything, welding included. Hmm. And that came very handy uh, when I got the job with the conservation because I built the first trap myself. Took scraps of metal and whatnot, culvert traps, culverts to move water, use those materials, hmm. a welder of mine, and made the first trap uh, that we have and use and still use right now. <laughs> so it's moved quite a bit of bears, that trap uh, that we have, but yes, the mechanic part of my career sure came in handy for that. Not only the bear trap, but when I started with the luring stations, I first used those 55-gallon barrel drums, put meat in there, welded it shut, and so that was part of the program too. So quite a bit of welding was involved in bear management. And we should probably, for the sake of you that aren't attending the conference, exactly. we'll probably uh, just explain that you're basically taking bears that are, you know, would migrate right through town and you're kind of moving them around the town to the place where they need to be. Yes, That's exactly <laughs> that for um, the ones that uh, are listening to this. We, every year, like I said, we have the bear problem and Bears like to go to the garbage dump, obviously, because they smell and, and it's an attractant. But to keep bears away from that and town, we set up uh, two luring stations that we use um, seal sickle, as we call them, uh, five-gallon buckets filled with water and then a fist-sized seal meat that we freeze in there solid and put them on locations and create a scent trail leading to these luring sites, two different ones, and when by the time they're at the second one, they're far enough from the community. 
on down. They go continue on their regular path of migration. Hmm. Now, do, would you say that people in your community do they do they have the same relationship with polar bears that you do? I mean, in, in this, the sense of conservation, because you talk a lot about using traditional knowledge that's passed down from generation to generation as part of your management of bears. Does that apply to everybody in the community, or do you still have human bear conflict that exists even in a place where polar bears are sort of part of life? They still exists all the time, but where it comes from, they're very bear tolerant. Mm. Um, they respect the bear and do as much as possible to try and deter the bear and not put it down. So it's still there are some time to time where a bear has to be put down, but it's quite rare mm. where I come from. Mm-hmm. And that's how it goes right now. Erin hmm. or Beth? <laughs> I just think it's fascinating. But so, how big for anybody that's listening? How big is the community you live in? Like, I'm trying to think of like flying community is pretty small. How many people live there? The population right now is just over three thousand people. So it's kind of small for uh, certain uh, standards, but it is big for our area. 3,000 people in a community flying only, it, it is quite big. It's the second biggest place in the territory, which is our state province in Nunavut. And we get our, all of our supplies on a ship that come in in the summertime when the ice is free. So that's how we get our supplies where they come from by a ship. <laughs> and so do you know all, with your position, do you know all 3,000 people? Basically, all 3,000 people. Everyone knows everyone. It's small enough that everyone knows everyone. And um, there's a lot of big families who are a part of those 3,000. And um, like marriages between families, they create even bigger families. So, yeah, we know everyone. (laughs) So knowing everyone, do you you have issues like getting information out to people or is it pretty easy? No, it's quite easy. Um, We use a back home a local radio station and FM radio and whatever message we want to send out we use that and something called a citizen van a radio a two way radio those two you could hit everyone in town (laughs) my favorite part in your presentation which was I I'm glad Tim asked about the family ties in your dad because during his presentation during the workshop he said one of the photos came up of a bunch of conservation officers and he went, that's my dad. <laughs> <laughs> that was a highlight for me. <laughs> so yeah, it goes to show just. I, before he moved on in his career, I got to work with him for a year in the same office. So it was quite um, wow. a good experience for myself. That's really I neat. Bet. Am I remembering correctly in your presentation that it's about two thirds of the global polar bear population? In is Canada. In, in Canada. And the majority of them are in yeah, and you said year to year it kind of fluctuates with how many bears that you deal with through this program. How many, how many on average would you say, or what, what's the range for how many bears you well, have to relocate? It, on a low year, it'd be about 50-something bear calls that we handle. Not see, but like someone calling in and saying there's a bear at a certain location within town limits or whatever and chase it away. On a high year, our highest was just about 223 bears and I'm talking um, from October to early December wow. not throughout the year just during those months two, just over two months 
Wow. Can you describe a little bit more what the process is for trapping and relocating these bears? You mentioned the luring stations, but when you actually get a bear in the trap, what does that look like? It, uh, when we're setting up, normally we try and target bears that are constantly coming back. So we put it in a known location where it might be set up a live trap there with the wind downwind, the entrance I mean, so that they could go in. Any other way, bear will not go in. But we uh, put bait on the trap, on the trigger, its natural diet, a seal. And when a bear goes in, takes the bait, gate closes, so they're in there. And like I said earlier that we have patrol, those patrolling 24 seven, and they monitor these traps constantly. So when there's a bear in the trap, they call me immediately, one in the morning, five in the morning, doesn't matter. They call me, I get up, we go there, hook up the trap to a truck, and then drive about six, eight, six to eight miles, and then release the bear. I'm curious, a couple, got a couple questions for you. One is, you talked a lot about, again, traditional knowledge, and you gave the example that, you know, the elders would pass down information, and when you compare it with, you know, research, they were always right. And yeah, that's really fascinating to me. I'm curious with, you know, what we're starting to see with issues caused by climate change. How does that line up with elder knowledge about our relationship with bears or other natural resources? Are you starting to see variations or changes in terms of polar bear behavior that doesn't line up? Or is it still kind of lining up because that knowledge goes back so far? Well, it goes back generations and yeah. lots of them, like over a thousand years. but. On climate change, I can't really talk about climate change. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not much of a climatologist. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Um, and then the other question I guess I have is, uh, you know, we, we live in black bear country. Um, there's no grizzlies really around where, you know, in our two states any longer. Um, and are, I'm curious, are polar bears inherently more dangerous than the bears that we deal with? Uh, just because the fact that they're not uh, omnivorous as much as black bears and grizzly bears? Well, they are like any other bear. They could be very dangerous. Naturally, a bear runs away when they see human. And uh, But if they want to be, they could be very dangerous. And the dangerous ones are the ones that the mom just uh, pushed away. Mm -hmm. The young ones that are not fully developed yet in hunting. Mm -hmm. And they're very brave. Those are the very dangerous ones. They're the ones that are not too big. Mm -hmm. And the big ones, the big wise ones are, uh, they might seem ferocious or scary, but they're very smart and they try and avoid humans. Hmm. Very interesting. That is really interesting, especially from us here in black bear country. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I just keep looking at Joe and thinking that he might have handled more polar bears than anybody, right? So yeah, he's been doing You've been doing that job for a long time and you average, you know, hundreds of bears a year for quite a few bears, yeah. Yeah, so the number of polar bears that you've actually been in close contact with is pretty amazing. And there it's a, an awesome creep, amazing animal. Like when you get up close to them their their sheer size is just intimidating. They're so big and hmm. when they're in the trap they're just gentle giants just patiently in the trap they're just waiting to be released. <laughs> do you guys um, mark the bears at all? Yes, we do. When they go in the trap, we put a temporary marker on them to make sure to see if it does come back. And it, it 
there has been times where they come back, but majority of them, they move along because we purposely move them where they want to go, the direction that they are heading. And they, that helps they get further from town and just continue along. What does a temporary marker look like? It, it just, uh, the ones that we use is a pink powder um, on a bean bag fired from a shotgun. So oh, like okay, a, just a little like a, dot, like a pink yeah, dot. Yeah, it's a little dot that yeah. has a powder, so when it impacts, it creates an area of uh, color pink, and you make a note of that. I shot it at this part here of the. So, I was trying to think, like, if you, because you've trapped so many bears that, or had contacted so many bears, if you've seen bears like years after year, like we do sometimes, we'll see an ear tag or we radio collared bears and things like that. But I was, do you guys do that up there? Or Not in Nunavut, just the but uh, the next jurisdiction, which is south of us, Manitoba they call our bears and put satellite ear tags and all that so but we do see that when they go through and aaron you weren't there this morning but i have to relay this to you somebody asked that exact question and joe basically said well i look out at the audience here and i i there's you're all different i can tell the differences between you so it's like I you think you recognize those bears looking at a white polar bear though that like they would kind of look the same but Probably not. I love sure how he summed it up. A human too and says, oh, they're all the same. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love how you put that. Yeah. I guess my my last question for you, others might have more questions, but um, is you're the number one point of contact when people have questions about polar bears. What is the general perception of polar bears in your area? And does it take a lot of educating the public on, I know what we talked in our in our states, it's a lot of educating the public on how to live with bears. Do you see that a lot? Not so much because uh, we're the majority of them are locals who grew up, and there's not much tourism in my area, so I don't see too many people. But the few that do come, yes, they come and ask questions and whatnot. And if there's a visitor that's not from there, walking on the edge of town, a resident will actually go there and say. Please get back to town. <laughs> call, call them bear food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That goes back to our um, what we were talking about with um, our last guest, just living in these communities where there's a lot of visitors, there's a lot of bear conflict, yeah, human bear conflict. It's a challenge. Yep. I think that does it for me. Yeah. Any other questions from you? I'm good, Joe. Anything else you wanted to share with us? Thank you very much for having me in on here. Uh, I'm very thankful, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Our next guest is Deanna Doan Kreider. She has more than 30 years of experience. She's a wildlife range and landscape ecologist. And Deanna, could you just start by giving us a little bit of background about yourself? You do a lot of work in Mexico. I do, but I've got a bigger home range than a male black bear. So I, <laughs> I saw uh, that. Working in Montana right now, but wow. my family's from Mexico. I'm a U.S. citizen and a Mexican citizen. I was raised by my grandparents in Mexico, and um, we're indigenous, and um, just fell in love with bears. My grandfather got me started on it, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. So, you know, when I think of Mexico, I don't really first think of black bears, you know, but then again, I don't always think of mule deer. There's a lot of animals that are, you know, similar to what we have here in, in the United States. Uh, tell us a little bit about black bears in Mexico, just so we have kind of a background to know what you're working with down there. Sure. We actually have quite a few. And, you know, most of northern Mexico is quite mountainous. We have the Sierra Madre Mountains, the east and the west. Very good bear habitat. Formerly, we had grizzly bears, but they were killed out around the 60s. And, um, and so black bears were declining. 
and through the efforts of a lot of us, starting kind of back in the 70s, we started working you know, on fairs, but at the same time, there were groups of landowners that were working together to protect them. And um, since that time, we've seen recovery of black bears, and they're now also reestablishing in Texas, coming across the border. Texas had eradicated their bears in the 1940s. Wow. But now they've got a resident population because hmm. of the Mexican bears. Okay. And most of the area in northern Mexico is private, so we don't hear a lot about that. Mm. You know, private landowners don't allow, like a lot of people, you know, poking around. Yeah. So most of what we hear about is from southern Mexico. And uh, do, you know, do black bears in Mexico... Uh, behaviorally same as we would know them here and is there is there human bear conflict in mexico oh, similar yes. to here oh, yes we've got plenty um they're different but they're similar yeah uh, they have very short denning periods you know because we have food available pretty much all the time right. there's real diversity of foods there we have a lot of different oak species they rely heavily on acorns hmm. Um, but because we're in such an arid area, they're super susceptible to drought and things like wildfires, so they move around the landscape quite oh, a bit okay. based on food production. Mm. So, um, but for the most part, you know, they're, um, they're uh, used to living in that kind of an environment, and they actually use those types of events to disperse and reestablish populations. Oh, wow. And then what's the relationship like, say, between, you know, indigenous communities or, you know, uh, people immigrating to Mexico from other places? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, our indigenous communities have been persecuted as much as the black bears have, right. especially pre-colonization. Mm -hmm. So we don't know a lot about black bears before that time. Yeah. I have a feeling they were heavily persecuted. Um, so there are some indigenous groups that have learned to coexist with them. My family's ancestry um, actually uh, regard acorns very highly hmm. and so they understand the impacts of acorns on other wildlife populations such as bears and, and that sort of thing mm -hmm. um but really you know our indigenous groups are as much as as much in trouble as black bears were a while back so um it's it varies we've got 300 and something indigenous groups and each one has different relationships depending on where they are and if they still have black bears there okay yeah i, I feel like you know just in the reading I've done about, you know, indigenous, indigenous groups in Mexico, what I've, I haven't seen a lot of like bears reflected in some of the imagery, you know, you see jaguars, you see, you know, mm -hmm. some of the other mythical creatures, but, um, you, you know, I, I don't come across that a lot. So again, it's like, I don't always equate black bears with Mexico, but you do obviously have black bears. And most of the biological work, like the research and everything is done further south and, and towards Mexico city. So they get a lot of PR. Uh, okay. Up north, it's a lot different. A lot of mm -hmm. those indigenous communities are very isolated. Um, and also, in my case, at the Pehuanes, which is my family, um, they retreated up into the mountains um, mm. after colonization. There was a big uprising. And so we used to live down in the lowlands. There aren't many indigenous groups that live in the mm. lowlands anymore because of, um, you know, colonization kind of took over those right. areas. Right, and it sounds like over time you've really had to lean into your local, the local knowledge of locals along with your cultural heritage. How has that changed how you manage and deal with human bear conflicts? Well, I think for me the most important part is that, you know, when I, I went to school up in the United States, my dad's American, and back in the 70s, um, we didn't have any wildlife programs in Mexico. So I came to school up here. And so I was taught in a very westernized way. I was taught... Um, using, you know, pretty cutting-edge tools, uh, very high budget. When I went home to Mexico, it was like, 
man, I need to duct tape and, you know, some wire to, to work there. It's a lot different. <laughs> and plus, like a telemetry radio collar cost what a cowboy would earn in a whole year. So everything became very different for me when I went down there. And I learned that, you know, we should rely heavily on no local knowledge. And I have a fun little story, and that is that when I went down there to work, I ended up in a cattle production area. It's about 3,000 square kilometers. Um, and these people had been living there for over 100 years. And they gave me a list of everything that I was going to find out about black bears. You know, how many cubs they were going to have, what foods they ate, where they went when there was a drought. Mm. They did a million dollars later, I checked off everything on that list. <laughs> and I sat back and I thought, now why did I do that? Why didn't I believe them? Why did I have to do all of this quantitative type, you know, yeah. uh, science to prove what they said? So I'm not tossing Western science out the window, but local knowledge can be very powerful. We had a lot of bear predation on cattle. So I went to the cowboys and I asked them, what do you think is going on? And they said, well, we know the bears use the brush to sneak up on the cows. And we know that they drag them under the fences, and we know that as they get closer to water, that's where all the bears accumulate with the cows. Well, sure enough, we spent a bunch of money to test that. Guess what? They were right. <laughs> so anyway, now what I do is I, I get Western science. You know, you want to apply that. But at the same time, I rely heavily on local knowledge. And I'm not talking about the superstition type stuff. It's stuff that I go back and validate and work closely with the cowboys and the ranchers and, and found that... Um, on these large landscapes that are really hard to pick apart with a Western type study, um, local knowledge helps fill in all those gaps and help me to understand, wow, what's going on with yeah. the picture? This is really interesting. Hmm. And on the traditional ecological knowledge side, that is knowledge that is passed down through generations and generations from indigenous people, thousands of years of experience on their landscapes and understanding the ecology can you imagine if I had communication with it that they want us to tell me what acorns do over the span of a thousand years yeah. and what that means to black bears? Wow, that would have been great. Yeah. I didn't have that at the time. Huh. So, Can you just maybe offer some advice for agencies that are, we're starting to go down the road of working closer with tribes mm -hmm. and to incorporate some of the, you know, the longtime uh, traditional knowledge. Have you seen that done successfully? And is there any advice you'd have for you know agencies that are moving down that pathway? Um, we are starting to see it, but there are some things that are important to know. So I work very closely with indigenous groups, um, and I do a lot of work, you know, seeing why we can't retain Native American faculty and students in STEM fields. Mm -hmm. And most of that has to do with the fact that the research that we have in Westernized universities is not community relevant to mm -hmm. them. It's not culturally relevant. So a couple of the number one rules, I would say, is plan for building trust. Plan a couple years for building a relationship with any indigenous group to show them that, number one, what they have to bring to the table is very important. You're not just doing it for diversity. We've hmm. all caught on to that. Right. Okay. So what, what tribes, if they want to cooperate, if they want to you know, uh, partner, um, there, it has to be applicable to their entire belief system, which is a totally different worldview than right. westernized. So I had one of the chiefs of a Sioux tribe tell me once, you guys want to talk about collaborating for, you know, grassland studies. He says, I have kids that are committing suicide. Tell me how that's all going to fit into mm. one big picture. Right. So you have to understand that indigenous groups don't separate all of that stuff out. Yeah. They don't just do wildlife work. This all has to do with community. So that's really important. Mm. And then the other thing is there's, uh, there are some publications out there. One of them that I've 
um, been fortunate to work with this team of people, and it's called the six R's. And one of that is respect. Respecting to allow indigenous groups to tell you what they want and how they want it done. Mm -hmm. Not us going, or I say us, not westernized scientists going to them and saying, hey, let us turn you into little people just like us. Yeah. Our professional organizations have a lot to learn there. You know, we don't just invite indigenous people in to become part of our, you know, diverse, you know, workforce. It's like, look, we want to create our own templates for our own communities. And most tribal communities want to build capacity for their students for their own tribal governments. Mm -hmm. Not to go work in the federal workforce, although that does happen as well. Right, right. We want to give students those choices. But those are really important things is to, you know, give them the opportunity to also take the lead in how they do things and if you are collaborating with a tribe you know make sure that it's for the benefit of everybody not just to fit programmatic needs and budget you know requests and deliverables and things like that everybody's caught on to all that thank you for that are you working solo or do you have a team that you're working with? I'm a very odd one to classify. I have my own organization, Animal Partnership and Natural Resources, but I contract out a lot. And the reason I do that is I'm also a caregiver. Most indigenous people are caregivers. So I, um, I can't just go sit in an office all day. So I work on problems that interest me. And so I accept contracts. So right now I'm on a contract with Salish Kootenai Tribal College in Montana. Um, I also do a lot of work for federal agencies and helping them to identify barriers and that sort of thing. So I'm kind of a princess when it comes to you know my profession. <laughs> I have I'm 60 years old. I have by now figured out how to put a platter of food together that I want to eat. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking as you were as you were talking about all those. They seem like a very like a personal meeting or a personal relationship with the the groups that you're meeting with. And if, mm -hmm. if you're doing all of those meetings, it just seems like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. It is. We have one project right now that we're helping a university to identify their barriers with um, a very um, close-by tribe. And it's a university of 15,000 students, and they have four Native students that are enrolled. Mm. And they boundary with this tribe. And um, we went in there with a very short-term project, like three years, and realized that the first year and a half was just simply building trust with the neighboring tribe because there was so much under the bridge that we told the university, just plan on spending a lot of time meeting, hmm. go to lunch, go to dinner, go to their own tribal organizations. Tribes have very strong tribal organizations. And we always recommend to people, look, don't try to recruit them into your organizations. Go to theirs. See how you can support them. See how you can learn and just spend time getting to know them. My best friends are indigenous people because I spend a lot of time with them. Mm. And um, it's been a very rewarding experience and it's worth every bit of investment of time. Yeah, that's a lot of good insight. And I'm excited to see your presentation. You haven't presented yet at the workshop. Oh, it's gonna be <laughs> in the morning, so drink your coffee. It's going to be great. <laughs> Anything else that you want to share with us? No, I just think it's a, this is a great workshop. Everybody's learning so much from everybody. And there's um, for the first time ever, I will say that I feel like this workshop is representing a bunch of diverse groups. So we're getting different perspectives. Our team from Mexico is here, so they're getting to share and they're learning as well. And there are some uh, tribal representatives here, which is really great to see. So no, it's, it's been a really, really great workshop so far. That's great to hear. Anything else from anyone else? 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. That was great. And we look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Deanna. Well, Ashley, Aaron, Beth, that was really fun. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I think we should do this more often. I agree. I think you're going to hear more Nevada Wild Beaver State combined podcasts. I'm excited. We have a few more workshops and conferences to come this next year. So (laughs) We just got to get you guys up to Oregon one of these days. I know. I know. This is a good excuse for that. (laughs) Aaron. Having uh, other conversationalists on the mics too. Yeah. To keep it going and ask the questions and yeah. I felt like it was a little bit of a break for me. I didn't have to drive everything and constantly be like, okay, the next, what's the next question? You That's know, you, what, how I fun. felt having you. I was like, we're just letting Tim <laughs> lead this. <laughs> it was really nice. And then on top of that, what a great group of guests that we had. They were fun. Yeah. yeah any favorites? Uh, I guess favorites is maybe not the word, but uh, in, anybody that really like, or, or maybe a, a piece of wisdom that just kind of stood out to you? I would just say. Yeah. Pretty much everything that he had to say was of interest and note and really amazing. I agree. And then Deanna, where we ended, I took a lot of good information from her. I think we have a lot to think about um, when it comes to locals and using that local knowledge to our advantage. It's very um, impressive how educated everyone is. Mm -hmm. And they are all very confident Mm -hmm. in their work and then also very well-spoken. Didn't really mix up their words or like couldn't find the words to explain it. We gave them a question. Some of mine, I I weren't proud of some of my questions asking um, Joe about visitors in a flying community. But (laughs) you know what? They all took the questions and they answered them. That was uh, that was impressive. I always when I do a podcast, send out a list of questions to people in advance. You know, this is one of the first times I've ever just like, let's just we'll we, <laughs> wing it you keep yeah, forgetting that word. that word yeah let's this is the first time i've just winged it and i was impressed i mean i think you know you've got a bunch of bear experts um and this is just the tip of the iceberg there are so many bear experts here from around the world um we didn't get to get to but we wanted to give you a little snapshot of you know bear human bear conflict uh through the eyes of people who are working in these fields and really the stuff we're learning here as communicators um and I just really appreciated being able to kind of share that with you guys. Yeah, I, I do too. It's, um, it's a very tough conversation, but it's happening, you know, for the past couple of days and then it'll be happening for two more days. Yeah. And it's like experts talking with experts and they're all very, um, this is their world in learning yeah. and yeah. seeing what's going on in other States. And I think that just like this podcast, like it's imaginary line of state to state, yep. the same themes are coming up over and over. Yeah. And it's especially unique, too, that not only do we have bear biologists and experts on bears specifically, but we have communications people here. And it's really nice to have everyone come together and talk about solutions and new ideas about how to better communicate, especially since we're talking about human-bear conflict. And communication is key. I definitely heard that loud and clear with Chris. Yeah. Is that it's not a bear problem, it's a human problem. Mm -hmm. And biologists are kind of like, coming around to like we need to talk about this <laughs> it's, you know? there is an elephant in the room in this one and yeah, it's us exactly <laughs> yeah. well that's going to wrap it up for us at the sixth international human bear conflict workshop here in lake tahoe i'm tim akama for the beaver state podcast i'm ashley sanchez with the nevada wild we'll see you next time
Thanks everyone for listening.